All right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats, start making your way back to your seats. As you do that, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9. For the past couple months, with some breaks in between, we've been, we've been working through the book of Esther. We're going to bring that series to a close this morning, but a, a series that we've entitled Esther, A Story of God's Providence. A Story of God's Providence. And I know some of y'all just got back to your seat, but I want us to, I want to read into your hearing this morning, Esther chapter 9. We're going to look at chapters 9 and 10, but, but I just want to read Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 20 and reading through verse 28. So when you've arrived there, will you stand out of reverence for God's word? Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, and we're going to read through verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all of the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. During, he ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days, the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamdatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the purr, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word pur, because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days, each and every year, according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. And this morning, I want us to consider the idea of God's providence and our praise. God's providence and our praise. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we as we come to an end in this series, Lord, that you will continue to work to make us look more like Jesus and to love you more, for you are indeed a God of providence. Pray this morning that you'll give eyes to see, ears to hear. Give me physical and spiritual strength as I seek to preach your word to your people. We are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> God's providence and your praise. God's providence and your praise. I always love and hate coming to the end of series. 
Um, they're a lot of fun to work through, working through books of the Bible. It's a, it's a great way to study the Bible, and, and there's joy in the sense of we get to kind of bring all that we've talked about kind of into this grand finale, but simultaneously, like many of you, I've enjoyed the book of Esther. I've enjoyed preaching, and I've enjoyed studying it. And the book of Esther, man, it really is an interesting book. Ten chapters, 167 verses, 5,633 words, and God is never mentioned once. There, there is no prophecy through which God speaks. There is no dream by which God's plan is communicated. There's no mention of him. No one even references God directly in the book of Esther. And yet, he is on every page working and bringing about that which he has promised. Esther, as we've talked about, Esther is a story of pain. It's a story of uncertainty, danger, and deliverance. But ultimately, ultimately... Esther is a story of God's unending providence, his rule and his governance of all things that happen in this world. It is a narrative, it's a story by which we come to better understand what we talked about in the very first sermon in this series. We come to better understand what Spurgeon meant when he said that God is too good to be unkind, he is too wise to be mistaken, and when we cannot trace his hand, we trust his heart. Let me just say this. I mentioned it a moment ago. I've been, I've been so encouraged through this series, but I've been particularly encouraged by the encouragement that you all have given me. I've been blessed by your encouragement about how this book of the Bible, this series, for so many of you, seems to be so timely <clears throat> and needed. I mentioned at the very beginning of it that I was actually torn between two different series. It doesn't happen very often. So I was literally planning two series kind of at the same time because I wasn't sure where we were going to land. And so we landed on Esther. And I'm going to give you the inside scoop as to why we landed on Esther. There was no dream or, or major revelation from God as to why we should do Esther before the other series. The reason that I landed on Esther is because I was unsure of which series to do. And Esther was the one I thought of first. So that's why we studied the book of Esther. And yet... It seems that in God's great providence, he knew exactly what his people needed to hear. And so I've been encouraged by your encouragement to me, but I want to add this to it. In my 13 years now of vocational ministry, and this isn't just embellishment, I mean this, I have never needed a sermon series as I preached it as much as I have with this series on God's providence. Over the past few months as I've prepared these sermons, I have rejoiced, I have wept, I have worshipped as I consider the magnificence of God's providence. And hear me, not just the idea in general, not just the theological concept that God is a God of providence who governs and rules all things. I mean, that's great, but, but, but what has struck me is the fact that God's providence is good news to me. And God's providence is good news to you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, verse 6, he says, The boundary lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. As I think about that, how does the psalmist know this? How can he say that, that the boundary lines have fallen in, in pleasant places? How can he say that he has a beautiful inheritance with such surety? It's only true. The psalmist can only declare it if God is a God of providence. And 
if he is, then we have reason to praise all the time. If God is on his throne, hear me, if God is indeed on his throne, if he is working in the midst of every trial, if he is working in the midst of every hardship, if he is at work when your enemies gather around you, if God is moving in your pain, then you and I, no matter the circumstance, have a reason to praise God. What I want to contend this morning is that God's providence should fuel our praise. That God's providence should fuel our praise. Now what we see in the last two chapters of Esther is the praise that flows out of the people of God as a result of all that has happened. In the book of Esther. It is a praise that flows out of their recognition of the clear providence of God at work. So let me indulge me a moment as we come to the end of this book. Let me, let me recap for you a little bit, you know, give you the, the shortened version of all that we've talked about up until this point, because Esther is an amazing story. Esther began in chapter one with an introduction to one of the players in the story, King Ahasuerus, or as he's commonly known to most of us, this is King Xerxes. Right, I mentioned early on, first sermon series, but I said don't watch it if you haven't. I'm not advocating for it, right? This is the king, the Persian king in the movie 300. Although I don't think he looked quite like he looked in the movie 300. But nevertheless, this is the king. It's King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. And by all earthly standards, he is an amazing king. He's ruling and he's reigning wide and far. He has conquered he rules with somewhat of an iron fist. And when we meet him in chapter 1, he's in the midst of a feast. I mean, and this was some feast, right? A 187-day feast where the Bible tells us that the liquor was flowing, the party was bopping, right? Like, they're, they're going in. And what are they celebrating? Well, they're celebrating the might, the grandeur, the vastness of the possessions of King Ahasuerus. And in the midst of this feast, while she was to parade drunk, it says that he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, to come before him, that she was to parade her beauty before all of his guests. And in an act of supreme defiance, King Vashti refuses. She refuses to be nothing more than another one of his possessions. And well, we, we know that the king couldn't let that stand. Right? The king had to maintain this perception of strength and supreme rule, so he banishes Vashti in a drunken rage, and he removes the crown from her head. And so this stage sets the stage for us to meet Esther, because when the king sobered up at the beginning of chapter 2, he realized that he'd made a mistake, but at that point, a decree had already gotten out. He'd already removed Vashti as queen. He'd already told all the provinces, and a king can't go back on his word. Even for a king, there were some limitations in terms of the law. If a decree goes out... A decree stands. And the king regretted his decision. So his servants came up with a plan for him. They said, you know what will make King Ahasuerus happy? Let's find him a new wife. I think in their mind, they were probably thinking, let's find him a better wife. And so the plan was, we're going to go throughout all the provinces that the king that the king rules, and we're going to find the most beautiful virgins in all of those provinces, and we're going to bring them before the king, and when the king is ready, on his timetable, when he wants to, he'll invite them one by one to come and entertain him, and that's the PG version. Well, it just so happened that in the fortress of Susa, the very place where the king dwelled, 
we're introduced to two people, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai was the adoptive father slash cousin of Esther. Esther was a girl who had already experienced much heartache. Her people were in exile. The Bible tells that her mother passed away, her father passed away, and so her cousin Mordecai steps in and acts as her adoptive father, caring for her. And so what we learn, we kind of put the pieces together, is that both Esther and Mordecai, they were appearing to want to live faithful to God's commands. They wanted to honor the law. They wanted to be, to be people of holiness and righteousness that is befitting for the people of God. But none of that mattered when the king's officials came to gather women. Esther was beautiful, the Bible tells us. So she was taken to the palace to await the time when she would be summoned by the king, where maybe, just maybe, she would win the favor of the king. And if she didn't win the favor of the king, her life was essentially over because she would spend her days in isolation in the palace as another one in the king's harem. It's a painful story. We talked about that. This is not a love story in the Bible. This is a young girl who is taken, regardless of what she wanted, and forced to perform sexually for a king that hopefully she would please him and become the queen. It was painful. And we know as the story goes, Esther, Esther pleased the king. She was named the queen. But it was never told to the king that she was a Jew. And so as a result of her position, she seems to have been able to get Mordecai, kind of one of these low-level positions in the kingdom. So he's at the king's gate, and in this position, it just so happened, it could almost be seen as coincidence, except we know that God is not a God of coincidence, but of providence. But as he's in this role, he overhears a plot to kill King Ahasuerus by two, by two of his eunuchs. They were plotting, thinking that it was safe to talk about it, how they were going to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai hears about it. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Esther, you need to tell the king that, that his guys are about to betray him. They're going to kill him. And so Esther tells the king, listen, Mordecai, this man who was just recently appointed to this position, he came across a plot and, and there are people that are going to kill you. And it says, the king investigated was found to be true and those eunuchs were killed but do you remember that Mordecai was never honored for that in fact it was somewhat forgotten by the king but God didn't forget and in fact, God was orchestrating the whole thing and we learned at the beginning of chapter 3 that another man was honored instead he was elevated to second in command. He wanted so desperately to kill Mordecai, not because Mordecai had said something foolish to him, not because Mordecai had insulted his wife, not because of anything like that. It's because when, when, when this man, when Haman walked by, the, the king had, had decreed that everyone must bow down before him to recognize his status in my kingdom. And Mordecai, trying to be faithful, believing that it's never worked out good for the people of God when we've bowed to anything other than God, refuses to bow and Haman is so incensed by this that he wants to kill Mordecai. But again, it's not enough to just kill Mordecai. He wants to kill every Jew in every province of King Ahasuerus' rule. So what does he do? He casts lots. They're called purr. Now, he wasn't casting lots to find out whether or not he should kill them. He was casting lots to try to figure out the best time to kill them. And he's casting lots on, in the first month. And so the lots fall on the 12th month, on the 13th day. And so Haman goes to the king and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill all of the Jews. 
And we're going to do it in 12 months' time. We talked about the fact that you got to have some sense of security in your rule to tell the people that you're about to kill that in a year's time we're going to kill you. Here's the day, here's the hour. Just know it's coming. And so this rightly sends the Jews, including Mordecai, into mourning. Because they know that they are helpless on their own to stand against the might of the king. And so Mordecai goes to Esther, and we find out that Esther had no idea that the plot had happened. Remember, the king doesn't even know that his bride is a Jew. So he pleads with Esther to intercede for the people. And if you remember, Esther's a little unsure about this. She says, listen, there are rules, there are laws. The king hasn't even wanted to see me for 30 days. And if I go to him and he does not welcome me in his presence, then I will be killed on the spot. And you remember what Mordecai says to her? Don't think that you will be spared when this killing starts. Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, God has placed you in this position for such a time as this. And so Esther goes to the king. And the favor that she had won with the king proves to be beneficial because the king welcomes her into his presence. He says to her, what can I do for you? Ask of anything. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom if you ask it. And Esther said, here's what I want, king. I want you to come to a feast with me. I want to prepare a feast for you, and I want you to invite Haman to come. Just the three of us. Let's feast together. And so they go to this feast. And man, after that feast, Haman is feeling good about himself. The queen invited the king to a feast, and the only other person that she invited was me. And so it says that he left that feast joyful, and as he's going home, right on the top of the mountain, who does he see? He sees Mordecai. And again, he's just filled with rage. And he decides, I can't wait for the 12th month to kill him. It has to be now. And so he goes home, and throughout the night, he's plotting and he's planning. He's having his servants build gallows at his house. He doesn't even sleep. He goes into the courtyard of the king to wait for the king to wake up to tell him how, how we've got to kill Mordecai now. But there was another person who wasn't asleep that night. It was the king. The Bible tells us that sleep escaped him. And so what he did is he called his servants. He said, read for me the book of records. You know, try to put me to sleep by reading. And so the servants grabbed the book of records, and they just happened to open to the page that was recorded uh, about a man a few years back who overheard a plot to assassinate the king. And the king says, what did we do for him? And his servants say, nothing. Now, it just so happened that Haman's in the courtyard wanting to kill this very man, and the king Maybe he hears something. Maybe he sees something. He says, who's in the courtyard? And they say, oh, it's Haman. He says, great, go get him. Bring him in. And so the king asks him, what should I do for a man that I want to honor above any other man? Right? The great irony, a God of promise. And so Haman's like, it's me. Oh, I'm going to lay in. Here's what you should do. You should get... You should get a robe that the king has worn and wrap it around this man. You should get a horse that the, that the king has ridden on and let him, be, let him be paraded through the city with the declaration that this is how the king honors the men who serve him. <laughs> and the king says, great, do it for Mordecai. Do it for Mordecai. Well, in that moment, Haman knows it's the beginning of the end. 
He goes home. He tells his wife, his, his friends about what has happened. And they say, listen, at this point, you have fallen too far. You're not going to overcome the Jews nor Mordecai. And as they were talking, servants of the king came because Esther had one more feast prepared. And again, it was just the king, it was Haman and the feast. And, and the king asked her again, just tell me, it can't just be these feasts. What do you want? And it's in that moment that Esther reveals that my people are slaves. My people are destined to be killed and annihilated on the 12th month, the 13th day. And it's almost as if the king forgot. And he said, who did this? And in a move of great boldness, Esther says, that man right there, it's him. You know how the story goes, Haman's taken, he begs for his life, doesn't work. The king orders that he be killed on the very gallows that he built to hang Mordecai on. So Esther goes before the king and she pleads with him, please, king, you see, you got to remember that it wasn't just like the, cre- the, the, the king could undo that decree that he had made. We talked about that with Queen Vashti. He couldn't just take it back. It had already gone into law. It had already gone out. And so they plead with him, listen, here, king, here's what we need you to do. Let another decree go out. And let the decree be that on the 12th month, on the 13th day, day, that the Jews have the king's permission to fight back. And the king says, let it be so. So the 12th month, the 13th day rolls around. And throughout all the provinces, in the fortress of Susa, everywhere where the king's rule is extended, the people of God, in the providence of God, fight back. And they win. And they gain victory over their enemies. Again, the book of Esther, 10 chapters, 167 verses, 5,633 words. And God is never mentioned once. But his hand of providence is on every page in every chapter. And as a result, as a result of his hand of providence, his people are saved and they do what a saved people must do. They praise. I know that was a rather long introduction, so let me try to work through this quickly here as we consider this idea of God's providence and your praise let me offer a few things to consider as we bring this to a close that I hope will will spur you on maybe maybe to sing a little bit maybe to shout a little bit maybe to worship maybe to praise the fact that our God of providence is worthy see here's the first thing that I want you to see this morning we praise Because God takes victims and makes them the victor. We praise because God takes victims and makes them the victors. Go back to the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. Esther 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them. Just the opposite happened. You remember the ESV, we preached from it last week, it says, The reverse occurred. 
The Jews overpowered those who hated them, and in each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. Again, we talked a little bit last week about how our God is a God of great reversals. That's what our God does, and we see quite a few of the reversals here in chapter 9. One we didn't even talk about last week, because on the day when the Jews were to be the victims of annihilation because of the plans of evil men, it turned into the day of their greatest deliverance because their God is a God of providence. But it goes even further than that, because way back in chapter 2, remember that Esther is taken to the palace without her consent or a thought of her future. She is a victim of of a perverse cultural practice, and it turns out that that was so that she could be a mediator through which victory would be secured. But there's even more. You can go back even further. Remember how the story started. Don't miss the irony here. The story started in chapter 1 with the king hosting a what? A feast, a party. But notice who's feasting at the end of the story. Esther chapter 9 verses 20 through 22, it says, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all of the Jews and all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. It says, that was the month when their sorrow was turned to rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. Here it is. They were to be days of feasting rejoicing and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. But notice, even at the beginning there of chapter 10, Mordecai, who was once a slave in exile with no position, just trying to care for his adoptive daughter well, it says in Esther chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, that all of his, all of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, have not, they, they had not been written in the book of historical events of the kings of I'm sorry, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. As the people of God, exiles and slaves in a foreign land, were victims to the oppression of a pagan nation with their very lives in jeopardy, our God, the God of great reversal, takes these victims and makes them the victors. You see, what Esther reminds us of, bear with me here, is this truth, this age-old adage in the church. I tried to figure out where it originated, and I couldn't find it because a lot of great people have said it, so I'm just going to call it an adage of the church. But this idea that we believe, that we have to hold to, that if our God is who he says he is, if our God is a God of providence, then we are not, we are not fighting for victory in our lives. We are fighting from victory. We are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. We see this even with Mordecai, right? Like like there were hints that Mordecai understood this, that the Jews understood this. Because you remember when the whole conflict came to be a conflict and Mordecai goes to Esther and he's saying, listen, you need to step in for the people. Maybe you're in a position for such a time as this. Do you remember what he said? In Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, it says that Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, here it is, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace, but watch this, 
if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. Like, right, Mordecai knows that he might taste death. He knows that he might die, but, but Mordecai knows that there is no way that the plan will go through to fruition. There is no way that the people of God will be annihilated on the 12th month, on the 13th day. How in the world could Mordecai have known that? Well, maybe he remembered the covenant that God made to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That doesn't make sense if the people of God are annihilated. How will he establish his kingdom forever through a descendant of David if all the descendants of David are dead? I don't know, maybe, maybe he remembered that time when the people of God were slaves in Egypt, when it appeared as if they had no hope. And then God raised up Moses, who led the people from slavery to freedom. And then God made a covenant with Moses as well. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. How will they be his priests and holy nation if they are annihilated. Or maybe, maybe Mordecai is thinking back to when God made a covenant with Abraham. When God took Abraham outside and said in Genesis 15 verse 5, look at the sky and count the stars if you were able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. How will they be that numerous if they die in Susa and the provinces of King Ahasuerus? Or maybe, just maybe, Mordecai remembered Genesis 3 when God told Satan, you will strike your head, but he will strike your heel. I don't know what it was that Mordecai thought of, but what I know is that he believed that there is no way that God could go back on his promises. That there is no way that God would allow for his people to be exterminated from the face of the earth. So Mordecai was not fighting for a victory when he told Esther to go before the king. No, 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 no. Mordecai was fighting from victory. He knew it was won. He just didn't know how. And oh, church, how we need to remember that while Mordecai was holding on to a promise, we are holding on to its fulfillment. And in its fulfillment, we see the greatest testimony that God takes victims and makes them victors. Because we know that when it looked like the Son of God had fallen victim to a broken justice system, corrupt rulers, and the enemies that were all around him, our God of providence was working to bring about our greatest victory. Jesus Christ, the innocent Lamb of God, slain for our sins, was crucified and raised to life. And in that resurrection, our victory is secure. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, 
as we face the trials and the hardship, as we face the pain of this life, as we battle sin and fight to be conformed more into the image of God, we have to know, we have to believe that we are not fighting for momentary victories. We are fighting from a victory that has already been won. And, and y'all might be sleeping a little bit on me, so let me try to break this down for you a little. That means that for you, Christian, as you battle sin, you are not ultimately fighting for your holiness because your holiness has already been won for you. Even more, as you face trials and hardship that come with seeking to live a godly life, you don't have to secure your victory. It looks like you have to overcome your enemies in your power. When you are slandered, when you are mis treated when it looks like your enemies have the upper hand, you can rest assured that the victory has already been won. And if that is true, it means that you can praise God no matter what's going on in your life. You ought to praise God in every moment of every day because in Christ you are not defined by your worst moment. Your future does not rest on your ability to overcome your enemies or your trials. Though you may be victimized by sinful people or broken systems, your ultimate victory is already secured because the tomb is empty and Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And all of this because our God is a God of providence. So we praise. So we praise. Here's the second truth I want you to see this morning. We praise because God always vindicates his people. We praise because God always vindicates his people. You know, we see this actually in a really unique way in the text, that, that if you're not careful, you might miss it. Three times in chapter 9, the author wants us to pay attention to something. He says it in verse 10, he says it in verse 15, he says it in verse 16. The author communicates something significant to us. Look, look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 10. It says, they killed these 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamdatha, the enemy of the Jews. Here it is, however, they did not seize any plunder. Now, verses 15 and 16, the Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. Verse 16, the rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. I mean, did you catch that? Three times the author wants to make it known that they did not see, they didn't take anything when they won. Now, we might overlook that and be like, okay, good for them, but that is a significant detail in this story. Because what we can't forget is that the king gave them permission to plunder. Look back at chapter 8, verse 11. It says, the king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, here it is, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. So what do we make of this? Because clearly it's a big deal to come up three times in one chapter. That, that, that in chapter 8, verse 11, that the king says, fight back. And fight back by the rules of war. If you kill them, you can take their stuff. You can take their land. You can take their weapons. You can take their houses, whatever, their gold, whatever they have, you can take it. 
But the author wants us to know they, they refuse to do that. Well, in order to make sense of this, we actually have to go back to Abraham. Because Abraham set a precedence for the people of God that he would only rely on God. Listen, listen to what we read in Genesis 14, verses 21 through 23. It says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, so who would become Abraham? So Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. Mm, Abram, Abraham, then Abram refused, check this, he refused to gain wealth and power and prestige. He refused to be vindicated through earthly means. Because a few chapters earlier in Genesis, God had promised Abraham that God would bless him, that God would provide an inheritance. Abram believed that God would deliver on his problem. Abram believed that God would be his vindication. And so perhaps the people of God are thinking back to Abraham about there was a moment when Abraham could have secured his wealth and status through earthly means, but he refused. Or maybe they were thinking back to Saul who didn't do it right. You see, God told King Saul in 1 Samuel 14, to go and destroy all the Amalekites. God said to destroy everything, destroy the people, destroy the possessions, destroy the livestock, don't leave anything. But Saul didn't do that. Instead, he kept some of the plunder for himself. He even kept the king and let him live. And Samuel confronts Saul about this in 1 Samuel 15, verses 19 through 23. And, and Samuel says, so why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? <clears throat> but I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agog of, of, of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took, here it is, the troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the, ble the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look to, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like the wickedness of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Right, so the people of God had two examples prior to this moment. They had one of Abram and one of Saul. Abram trusted that God would deliver on his promise, that God would provide, and he did not need to seek earthly means to establish himself. But Saul, on the other hand, took the plunder. He wanted his men to think good of him. He tried to provide resources and do what he thought was right rather than trust that God would provide. And I like what one commentator, Joyce Baldwin, writes about this. She says, the deliberate decision not to enrich themselves at the expense of their enemies would not go unnoticed in a culture where victors were expected to take the spoils. The very novelty of such self-denial would be remarked and remembered and taken as proof of the upright motives of the Jewish community. 
Here's what I'm getting at in all this. The people of God had an option in this moment of victory. Remember, these are people who had been slaves. They were exiles in a foreign land. They are despised by many, as made evident by the very situation they find themselves in in the book of Esther. There was likely a real temptation to try to increase their status through this victory to ensure that they would not find themselves in a position like this again. There was likely a temptation to gain wealth by taking the resources of those they had killed. There was likely a temptation to take the property of the people they overcame to establish themselves and make sure that nothing like this could happen again. There was a temptation to seek validation, vindication, and establish themselves through earthly means but the people of God decided they didn't want that kind of vindication that God had delivered them and rather than vindicate themselves rather than establish themselves rather than to put themselves in a position to prevent something like this from ever happening again they decided they wouldn't do it like Saul they would not think in earthly ways rather they would continue to trust that God's vindication was better Here's what I'm trying to get at with all this. You and I will face pain in this life. You and I will face trials and suffering. And there is, and you know it, there is a temptation to think that we have to get ourselves out. There is a temptation to think that we have to vindicate ourselves on our own. And at times, there will be a real desire to do that. Maybe you've had people treat you unjustly in your life. Maybe you've had people misrepresent you in public at your job. Or maybe you've had people who just think ill of you. And there is a temptation to try to justify yourself by earthly means to make yourself look better. But can I tell you, God will always vindicate his people. And his vindication is always better. But I'll be candid with you. His vindication often comes in ways different than we expect. His deliverance from our struggle or uncertainty often shows up in, it shows up when and how we least expect it. Like so many truths we've talked about in this series, I'd be willing to bet, and I'm not going to do it, despite the fact that both Kendra, Kendra and Crystal want me to, but I bet we could go around this room and you could testify to the fact that there were some moments in your life where you wanted to vindicate yourself, you wanted to bring about your own deliverance, but you decided to wait on God and that deliverance came, but it came when and how you least expected it. In a way you never thought possible, but God showed up and worked in amazing ways. And let's be honest for a minute. There, this is where we often get ourselves into so much trouble. Because we can only think in natural ways. We can only think in terms of earthly means. When I have a problem and I think of fixing the problem, I only think of tangible earthly ways to fix the problem. But do you know what the story of Esther screams to us? There is a God in heaven who does not need the things of this earth to bring about his plans. The story of Esther is a story of God stepping in and working in supernatural, miraculous ways. Yeah, his name is never mentioned, but his hand is all over this. Our God works in ways we could never imagine. And if Esther is not good enough for you, I'll do you one better. Do you know how ridiculous the gospel is in earthly terms? 
When we were dead in our sins, Jesus showed up, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Wait, but nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And God says, hey, watch this. The Son of God grew in wisdom and stature. He kept the law perfectly. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors, with the prostitutes and the poor. And the religious people started to talk about him. They started spreading rumors. They started plotting against him. And you know what Jesus did? He didn't vindicate himself. He kept his eyes fixed on the Father. They got so tired of him that they decided to arrest him. They put him on trial. It was a sham trial, but they put him on trial. They started asking him questions. They tried to trip him up, and some of the rulers even tried to give him a way out. But you know what Jesus did? He didn't try to vindicate himself. He kept his eyes fixed on the Father. They convicted him of trumped-up charges. They beat him. They spit on him. They tortured him. And though Jesus could have ended the existence of the earth with the very word of his power, you know what he did? He didn't try to vindicate himself. He kept his eyes fixed on the Father. They nailed him to a piece of wood. They pierced his side and they watched him die. And you know what Jesus did through all of it? He kept his eyes fixed on the problem or on the Father. And you may be thinking, well, Michael, where's the vindication in that? That doesn't sound like a very good end to me. But oh, no, no, that's not the end. Because three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb fully vindicated in his claim to be the spotless lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And do you know where he is right now? Sitting at the right hand of the father with his eyes fixed on him. What I'm trying to tell you is that we have example after example, testimony after testimony, that God does not need you to figure it all out. God does not need you to fight every battle that you face in your own power. God does not need you to get yourself out of the mess that you often get yourself into. God says, trust me, wait on me, and watch me work. Now, this does not mean you don't do anything. See, I want to be clear, God's providence doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing because when the time came to fight, do you know what the Jews had to do? Oh, they had to fight. But it was because God had led them to that. God moved them to action. If our God is a God of providence, we can trust in confidence, we can wait in hope, and we can watch him work with prayer. Now, I'm running out of time, so here's the final thing I want you to see this morning. I'll do this real quick. I'm going to put my last two points together real fast. Watch this. All right. Here's the third thing I want you to see. There were going to be four. Now there's three. God's deliverance brought about by his providence is our testimony. God's deliverance brought about by his providence is our testimony. Look again at verses 21 and 22. Chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. It says, he ordered them to celebrate the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. Now jump down to verse 26 through 28. For this reason, the days are called Purim, from the word pur, because of all the instruction in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves 
their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instruction and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in the Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Do you know what is still celebrated today in the Jewish culture? Purim. See, in light of God's providence and the deliverance that he brought about, the people of God did what the people of God should always they praised. If our God is indeed a God of providence, it means that he is sovereign over earthly powers. He is sovereign over your pain. He is sovereign over your position. He is sovereign over the defining moments you will face. He is sovereign over your enemies. And what we have to believe is that God's got it all in control. And do you know what that frees us to do? Because if God's got all that, it means I don't have to. And so that frees me to worship. It frees me to praise him because it means that I don't have to fear this world anymore. It means that I don't have to avoid every heartache. I don't have to secure my spot in this world. I don't have to create opportunities. I don't have to fight all of my battles alone. I, I get to praise. Can I be honest with you for just a moment? This is something that I've just been convicted about as we've worked through this series. If all that we have talked about from the book of Esther is true, that God is sovereign or that God, God is sovereign over earthly powers, that he is sovereign over your pain, he's sovereign over your position, he's sovereign over your defining moments, God is sovereign over your enemies. If God is sovereign over all of these things, our praise is inadequate. And we've become okay with that. Just can I just be honest? I'm not necessarily talking about you as an, as an individual. I'm looking at the, 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 the church in this world at large. I think that our praise is inadequate and we've become okay with that. Let it never be said of us that we were too sophisticated to shout. Let it never be said of us that we were too cultured to cry out. Let it never be said of us that we are too polished to lay prostrate before our God. Because I, I want you to see this. This deliverance for the Jewish people became a stone for them. You remember how I said we were going to come back to those stones in Joshua 4 a few weeks ago? Remember we talked about that? Some of you might not have been here. Let me tell you what happened in Joshua chapter 4. So God is leading the people towards the promised land. God is leading them, and they come to the Jordan River. And once again, they're up against some water that they can't cross. wasn't the first time. And so God says, listen, when you get there, when the first people put their feet in the water, when, the, when those priests holding the Ark of the Covenant touch it, I will stop the water from flowing. And you will walk across. And you know what happened? God stopped the water and they walked across. But God said, listen, what I did was pretty cool and I don't want you to forget it. So when they get to the other side, God says, here, Joshua, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take 12 men representing the 12 tribes. I want you to send them back into the Jordan because the water still stopped up. I want you to grab some stones off the ground and I want you to carry them with you wherever you go. And God says, because these stones will be a visible picture, a testimony that when your children look at these stones they can say why do we have those stones and you can say oh baby let me tell you what God did for us and here's the thing church we need some stones in our life because we are not talking about how amazing our God is 
We have lost the weight of his deliverance and his movement. And I think the thing is, because we become so technologically advanced, we become so wise in our modern age that we can explain away some of the supernatural. And we are content to think that we did it all on our own. And we are losing a generation because we've stopped talking about God's deliverance at the dinner table. We've stopped talking about the fact that God moves and moves in mighty ways. We're losing our community because our praise is relegated to this place and we shut up when we go out there. But if our God is this great, yo, we got to carry some stones. We got to carry some stones. I think the reason, I think the reason that the church has lost its prophetic voice is because we've gotten so good at telling people what they should do And we've stopped talking about what God has done. We've lost our prophetic voice. Can you imagine what it would look like if the people of God believed these things to be true of God and then worshipped as if God still delivers like that? And you might be thinking, well, Michael, I'm here for that. I'm here for that. The problem is I just, I don't have any stones to go grab. I don't know where God has moved. I haven't seen God deliver like that. I've never been a slave in exile. I've never seen God overcome a foreign enemy for me. I'm still battling sin. I'm not even seeing victory in that. Well, if all of that is true, let me give you a stone that you can take with you. Because about 2,000 years ago, it was covering a grave where our Savior led. And God moved that stone, and out of that grave walked our hope, our victory, and our salvation. And if God has not delivered you from anything else, but he has delivered you from sin and death, you have more than enough reason to sing and shout and declare how great our God is. The book of Esther, 10 chapters, 167 verses, 5,633 words, and God is never mentioned once. And you might feel like that's true of your life as well. That you know he's there, but you can't see him. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know how he's working. Let me remind you that God's hand might not always be seen in what's happening in your life, but here's his promise to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The cross and the empty tomb by which our salvation is guaranteed is but a reminder that God is for you and not against you. So what's left for us to do if God is indeed a God of providence? We praise. We praise him. Because he is indeed too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, I thank you so much that you saw fit to tell us about how how strong you are in this story of Esther. I'm so thankful 
that you are a God that even when your name is not said, even when you are not spoken of, God, your work speaks for itself. That you are strong to save, you are powerful to deliver. God, I pray that you would remind us that the same God that worked in majesty in the book of Esther, God, you are the same God that is working now in each and every one of our lives. And you have promised, God, that you will work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, God, we know, we know The battle's over, and we don't have to fight for victory. We get to fight from victory, and I pray that we would find hope in that. God, give us grace to try as hard as we can to give you the praise and the honor and the glory that is rightly due your great name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.